This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, The Dark Descent into Hell, tracing the origins of Persephone and other underworld goddesses. Ah, we're back with Persephone and Hades. The (laughs) strangest love story ever told. Uh, Well, not the strangest. (laughs) Sorry, I just suddenly started thinking about Loki turning himself into a horse. Yeah, um, no, fair enough. (laughs) A mare, in fact, a sexy mare. A a very sexy mare. No, I I (laughs) think... This is why no one can take sound bites out of dissecting dragons because they make no sense. Um, <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> I guess actually, weirdly enough, Hades and Persephone seem to have the most healthy relationship out of any of the Greek gods. Yes, which is something we will get to at its proper time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this is going to get very confusing if we don't try and follow it in order in the sense of. Um, chronological order in in terms of what actually happened when kind of thing so we're going to be going back through time not literally but could be with you though couldn't it mythologically no i've never taken anyone back through time oh deliberately 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 um (laughs) anyway so why this episode does the myth of hades uh abduction of persephone bear the sort of scrutiny that an entire podcast devoted to it is it worth that kind of thing? And actually, yes, it does. Um, but the reason I particularly wanted to do this was because I accidentally put some misinformation out there, and I hate misinformation. Shock, gasp, horror. And it was, it was only when one of our listeners asked me a question, and I was like, oh yeah, actually, I can't remember the original source of that. So I went and looked for the original source, and the original source was not what I thought it was. Oh, so some of this was the case of, yeah, I'd, I'd misinterpreted somebody else's um, interpretation of an original source and then added some perfectly legitimate sort of speculation and and other sort of mythological evidence to it. So mm-hmm. I'm going to take you through the entire thing. This is fun, guys. This is going to be lots of fun. There's going to be linguistics involved. <laughs> <laughs> Jules, um, you know th- things are serious when Jules... Bring out the big guns. <laughs> Linguistics. But yeah, aside from the whole thing where obviously I write historical fiction and I hate misinformation because it makes it so much more difficult to say things like, oh, guess what? Yeah, gay people appear in quite a lot of myths. And, mm. you know, women made up about a third of the all armies right up until we had standing armies kind of thing. So, yeah, this is a big sort of I'm correcting myself on this. This is an issue. Yeah. Um, the other the other side of it is this story is so much more interesting. It's way juicier. <laughs> okay, so let's start with a brief recap of the abduction of Persephone by Hades as we know it. Okay. So, <laughs> where do we start? Settle down, children. Everybody, get comfortable. <laughs> In fact, there's going to be a lot of sort of storytelling, so you definitely want to settle down, get yourself a beverage of choice, possibly a cake. <laughs> Do the Jack and Ori thing. Are we sitting comfortably? <laughs> we begin with a beautiful young goddess named Persephone. 
Okay, we're going to have to move on slightly faster than that. <laughs> yes. Um, basically, Hades was supposed to have fallen in love with Persephone. Persephone was allegedly the maiden goddess of growing things and the springtime. She was the daughter of Zeus and Dem- Demeter, or Demeter, however you prefer to pronounce it. And Zeus, or Hades didn't think that Demeter was going to look very favourably on his suit. So he went to Zeus to ask for advice and Zeus went, hey, just abduct her. That's what I would do. Um, it is it's ex- exactly what Zeus would do. <laughs> <laughs> Zeus, the serial rapist who could not keep it in his robes. Basically um, said to, to his brother to abduct his niece slash daughter. Yes. It, it, and, you know... It seems to get squickier from there because <laughs> Persephone was picking wildflowers one day and she pulled one flower and out of the hole which the flower had come from grew and grew and grew and Hades came through it in his chariot, grabbed her and dragged her into the underworld. From there, Demeter, who could not find her daughter, became frantic. Actually, there's an entire side quest where Demeter goes off and becomes nursemaid for a young prince and tries to burn away his immortality by, by putting the baby in the fire every night. But we're going to skip over that, because, again, <laughs> we've only got so much time, and there's lots of underworld goddesses to talk about. Um, eventually, Demeter finally goes to the Chthonic goddess Hecate, and Hecate says, well, she didn't know what happened, but she heard Persephone screaming as she was abducted. And so the pair of goddesses go off together, and finally they speak to the titan Helios, who, being a sun god, saw everything because he was on high. And Helios's Helios's uh, version of this was, well, yeah, it's kind of a bummer that your daughter got abducted. But on the other hand, think about Hades. He is literally the king of the underworld. This is a good thing. She couldn't do better for a husband. Um, this pissed Demeter off greatly. Mm-hmm. Um, she went to Zeus and demanded that uh, he order Hades to return her daughter. Zeus was kind of like, well, you know, it's kind of finders keepers, you know. fairly abducted you know she's his wife now I just accept it Demeter then threw the mega goddess version of a strop where she did a sit-in she basically shut everything down and the world was swathed in winter and everything started dying at which point Zeus started to sweat a bit like Boris Johnson when one of his (laughs) promises has not come true and everyone's pointing it out because, you know, without humans, none of the gods were going to get sacrifices. People were going to get pissed off. So he sent loads and loads of presents and things to Demeter. Demeter was kind of like, yeah, the only thing I want back is my daughter. And just kept ignoring him, kept this sort of nuclear winter in place. Mm-hmm. In the end, Zeus sent Hermes to the underworld to find out what the situation was with Persephone. Persephone missed her mother. Um, so the agreement was that Persephone could go and talk to her. Hades kind of went, actually, it sounds like it's going to be a real influx of dead around here if you don't do that. So maybe it would be a good idea kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And at this point, we're not sure entirely what happened. Either Hades tricked Persephone into eating six pomegranate seeds or he requested that she eat them so she could always come back. Um, We don't know what happened because this story in its entirety comes from the Homeric hymn to Demeter. And... You know, the, the page is torn. Literally, there's a bit missing. So oh my God. <laughs> we genuinely don't these ancient sources. So we don't know what happened. Lots of people seem to think it's kind of like he, he tricked her and other people are kind of like, well, actually, he treated her as an equal, so maybe she chose to eat them so she could always come back. Yeah. Anyway, continuing on our narrative, um, Persephone is re- reunited with her mother and 
Demeter is happy enough that she brings spring about, although she's not terribly thrilled that her daughter is going to be sending half of each year, or a third of each year, depending on which myth version you read, in the underworld with Hades. Hmm. Um, Persephone sort of becomes queen of hell in her own right, and Hades does treat her as an equal. She is the only one of the Greek goddesses who is actually acknowledged an equal, um, yeah. which is an interesting point we'll come back to. So, um, overall, though, that's a horrific myth. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I like, to, I like to wonder what would have happened if Zeus, you know, hadn't hadn't offered that sagely advice if if Hades had gone to literally anybody else. <laughs> yeah. Anybody. Well, maybe I don't, I don't know, Hades. Maybe just talk to her. <laughs> I mean, you've got to go from the perspective that we know the ancient Greeks did not treat women especially well. Women no. had no rights. And the lower born you were, the less rights you had. Yeah. This was this was proper intersectionality, guys. Yeah. And, you know, their myths reflected that. The myths were a reflection of the realities as the ancient Greeks understood it. Yeah. What's interesting is things like Persephone's equality with her husband creeping into the myth despite this. And will, we have to acknowledge that Pretty much any Greek god type romance was A, doomed, B, really, really fucking disturbing, C, generally non consensual. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. It, it can be any any Greek god. It can be even, even your favourite. Even your favourite will have a very, very dicey rape story in there somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very interesting as well because when it comes to Persephone, Persephone is unique also in the fact that respect for the goddesses was only really given um in particular you know from a male perspective um for to a couple of them artemis was respected and feared athena was respected and feared and both of them were and i say with quote marks virgins yes um, they and they they refused, you know, to form connections uh, with anybody else. They refused to marry, um, and in some ways, what they were essentially doing was that they were kind of putting away what the Greeks would have seen as their femininity. Both of them were were played in roles which were quite masculine, even though they were they were women. Um, and that's really interesting because you then you you know you get the other Greek goddesses who were not, and there's there's almost they're they're almost always getting raped. Or I mean, even Athena, Hephaestus tries to rape Athena at one point. Um, but you know that they're they're getting cheated on. They're being put to the side. Um, Aphrodite is there as sheer titillation i think a lot of the time is the way that they they kind of used her but persephone is very very interesting because as you point out she is an equal and she's not an equal like hera and zeus hera was definitely not zeus's equal she should have been but she wasn't she was often put to the side she was seen as vindictive and she never took action out on her husband whenever her husband cheated on her, which was frequently every day, every single opportunity that he could. Um, she would punish the, you know, the people whom he he had had sex with or whom he had raped um, or whom he had tricked. Um, so Hera was wasn't equal. But here we have Persephone, who is. And that is really, really interesting because she's unique among all of the goddesses in that way. Yeah. Anyway, so that's a recap 
and, and as Madeline's just pointed out, you know, it is a really unique position for Persephone, and that is key into understanding where this myth may have originated and most probably did originate. Yeah. Um, but basically, just to just to summarise, the Homeric hymn to, to Demeter is very, very clear about absolving Hades, who, let's face it, gets a really bad rap the rest of the time, generally mm. due, due to Christian influences, as in we need somebody who we can equate with the devil, so that's what we'll do. Um, and, you know, Hades is really nothing like Satan um, or the devil, and hell is really nothing like Hades kind of thing. It's just no. it's, a, it's a bad, bad sort of alliance there. Yeah. Um, what is very interesting is that Homer is, is very quick to point out that Zeus is the bad guy, the one who yeah. says abduct the daughter. Now, what I find interesting is that the Greek word kidnap did not necessarily have the negative connotations that came to be associated with the word when it was translated and, and given several centuries of attention by, the, by more modern people. Mm-hmm. Um, Without going into the politics of things like bride price and dowry and, you know, whether that was sexist or not, because, yeah, it probably was. When you lost a daughter from your family, you were essentially losing, you know, a worker and somebody who was also valuable in terms of forming an alliance. Therefore, a bride price was paid by the prospective husband's family Mm -hmm. for good reason. This is very rough. Um, Now, if a daughter and... her her potential suitor cannot find a way to make the politics work with their two families a way of getting around it was what became known later in later centuries as a saddleback wedding whereby the bride was inverted commas abducted right so she was going along willingly but she was abducted in the sense of the right sort of payment was not made to her family for her right and this may well have there may well have been a practice of this in ancient Greece. In fact, there probably was because almost all civilizations going all the way back to Sumeria had this sort of thing in there as well. Yeah. As in, we need to establish equality and status, status of the bride, status of the groom, status of the two families, therefore money and gifts were exchanged. But if one side was considered undesirable, mm-hmm. then a way of getting around the relatives or a way of moving from one tribe to another, was this kind of saddleback wedding, this abduction yeah. to steal a bride kind of thing. So this may be a case of the word kidnap might have actually been really de- misinterpreted. And then you get the sort of um, fusty Victorian scholars who are weirdly titillated by the idea of a beautiful young ra- maiden being captured and raped by an older man, um, yeah. who give you the most grotesque, violent depictions of it. Um and and it sort of builds on from there. So we don't know. I think ultimately is the thing we don't really know. But even if no. we take the Homeric hymn at its face value, it's comparatively recent in literary terms. Yeah. Okay. So I am going to quickly, <laughs> fairly quickly, go through the case for this story being a retcon of a much much older story. All right. Take us through it. Um, I just want to draw people's attention to the fact that in both Homer and in later works like the Iliad, for example, um, they're careful about titles because 
obviously they don't want to draw the attention of the gods to the underworld. More about no. that later. But Persephone is not referred to as Persephone bringer of springtime because ultimately she's incidental to the spring coming. It's her mother who does that. Yeah. She's always referred to as Dread Persephone or Persephone the bringer of death. Alright. <laughs> so interesting keep, idea there. <laughs> keep that in mind. Now, the interesting thing is that pre ancient Greece, there is a time called the the Greek Dark Ages, believe it or not, and they're obviously dark because there's very little literary material. Mm -hmm. um, we know that Hades does not predate ancient Greece. However, Persephone and Demeter do. Oh. They have a separate title and they were referred to as Wanasso, meaning the two queens. Okay, alright. So, that, so that's already really, really interesting. Um, and then if you go back along with this, Zeus kind of exists as an incidental but very minor sky god. The main male god of the time was Poseidon. Mm. So Hades isn't there, for a start. Um, the whole idea of Persephone's descent into the underworld also predates ancient Greece, so it predates her own main myth. Okay. Um, and I think it's really interesting that the name of Hades does not exist in Counterpart um, right up until sort of the Iliad. I think the Iliad is the first time Hades really gets a mention. Mm -hmm. So if we look at, there's a there's a sort of clay tablet inscribed with text called uh, the Mycenaean Linear B, yeah. um, which gives us a little bit of information about Persephone and Demeter, who were major, major league gods at the time. Mm -hmm. um, at that point in time, Poseidon is is designated as king of the underworld. Now, <laughs> the Mycenaean version of this myth is is interesting, and it was funny that we brought up Loki and horses earlier because this is going to be a horsey myth. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you have Poseidon, king of the underworld, and Demeter, literally the goddess of life. So you have the god of death and the goddess of life. This is this is normal for Indo-European myth um, to pair life and death like this, in, and whichever gender which party is is kind of a bit irre irrelevant, really. Yeah. Um, what happened was Demeter wasn't sure about accepting Poseidon's advances, so she turned herself into a mare to outrun him. He turned himself into a stallion, um, and finally engaged her affection, shall we say? Right. <laughs> Um, Demeter gave birth to Persephone. Persephone arrived as a mare. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. <laughs> um, obviously, she's not always depicted as a mare. Now, what was really interesting is Persephone also had a brother known as Arion. Now, Arion never assumed human form. He just stayed as a talking horse the whole time. Oh, all right. <laughs> But um, what's really interesting is Arion, again, was a minor deity. The three main gods were Poseidon, Demeter, Persephone. Now, if we go back to, we just flick back to ancient Greece, so this is a bit, bit nearer us on the timeline. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you've got the Homeric hymn going on. At the same time, in Eleusis, there is the cult of Demeter and Persephone, which yearly reenacted the descent of Persephone into the underworld. 
Unfortunately, we don't know exactly what happened because that's the thing with mystery cults. I mean, the clues in the title. Yeah. That what they get up to is a mystery. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hades had a part in that myth, but he did not have a part to play in the Mycenaean myth because he didn't exist. So the chances of it being an abduction story are like minimal because he just wasn't there. Yes. Okay. So I hope everyone's following my logic. So I'm, I'm, we're following it. I'm following it. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you have that, as I said, the reenactment. It's hypothesized that this was a three part journey of Persephone into the underworld. We can compare this to other three part journeys of goddesses going into the underworld because it's such a common motif mm-hmm. in Indo European myth. And it doesn't require an abduction. Generally, the goddesses go of their own volition. Uh, whether it's ill-advisedly or for a good reason, we'll, we'll come to in a bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, basically, Hades was not a central character, probably didn't even exist. So that is, that's very interesting, I think. Um, then we move further back in time to Acadia. Uh, there was a Demeter and Persephone cult in Acadia as well. The Akkadian version of the myth is similar, except I'm not sure there's a lot of horsey good feelings going on there. Oh. <laughs> um, but again, it is it is very similar. Um, what's interesting is that Demeter and Persephone have kind of shuffled Poseidon to one side in Arcadian myth, mm-hmm. and the two goddesses are referred to together as Despoine, which has the same root as despot now. Okay. They were known as the mistresses, literally the mistresses of the house. Um, if you go a bit deeper into the sort of Akkadian belief system, Persephone was referred to by herself as Dispoina, as in the mistress, ultimately the mistress, the one. Um, now, in the, where are we? Oh, no, I am absolutely wrong. Yeah, sorry, there, there, this was a horsey myth too. Oh, good. <laughs> Just checking my... Here I was so worried. <laughs> So basically, the pre-ancient Greek story was the whole the whole Demeter being a mare kind of thing, which makes sense. I mean, Poseidon turning himself into a horse, and the horse being one of his symbols, does survive into ancient Greece as well. Yes, it does. So, the basically what happened is you have this area of the, of, um, the world, and then eventually the Greek-speaking people sort of arrive in the area, and as so often happens, the gods of the area got ad- adopted and probably were given slightly new or possibly more pronounceable for those people who spoke ancient Greek names. Mm-hmm. Um, we know this happened. This happened with the the Picts and the Celts. This happened with the Saxons and the Celts. This happened with the Romans um, yeah. and, and the Celts. Uh, people try to make sense of things by drawing dotted or even straight thick lines between their gods yeah um making things fit that's how we all get on without completely murdering each other ultimately yeah or have done throughout history so there's a good chance that demeter and persephone were the greekified version of a pair of very um dangerous eldritch goddesses um as known to the Arcadians, because the Arcadians, it wasn't kind of a frivolous sort of, oh, it's a pair of female goddesses, we don't need to worry too much. It was kind of like, no, 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 <laughs> you do not mess with them. Yeah. Kind of scenario. These are these are dread beings. Um, 
And, you know, we've got parallels for that within our own Celtic myth if we look at think people like the Morrigan or yeah. Casabudva, who was a, a, an even a sort of proto-Morrigan. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, going back again to ancient Greece, there was a rampant cult for Cora and Demeter. Cora uh, literally means maiden, but it can also mean girl or daughter, which is a weird sort of title if you think about it. Yeah. Now, the thing with the, the Arcadian understanding of Persephone and calling her Despoina, the reason you would call her Despoina is because you cannot say her real name. If you say her real name, you might draw her attention, and you don't want to draw her attention because she is the goddess of the underworld, kind of thing. Okay, all right. And it's really interesting that they've taken the same goddess and called her Cora, as in maiden or daughter. Well, if she was the daughter of Poseidon and Demeter, then, yeah, you'd call her the daughter or the mistress. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't necessarily call her Persephone. So we don't really even know what her real name is, but the chances are this is that we're talking about the same goddess. Okay, all right. Um, she was allegedly the goddess of vegetation and nature, but that seems to have been a retcon later on to give us some pre-underworld status. Right. Um there was an Orphic cult dedicated to her, who saw her as the goddess of all nature, including death and rebirth. And she was almost exclusively referred to as a part of a duo of goddesses, dangerous goddesses, along with her mother Demeter. Um, people, you know, everyone who studied this universally recognised Cora as Persephone. All right. Um, in fact, there are so many cults of Persephone and Demeter that we would have difficulty... <laughs> ever sort of putting them all together in one book, let alone one podcast. Yeah. This is really, really interesting. And <laughs> you're right, in it's actually even more interesting than the than the, the original conjecture, as it were. It, it, it's the juiciest family drama, because yes, in what survives all the way through is the, the strained mother-daughter dynamics, but also the mother-daughter unity and the fact that they, they are ultimately united and and strong against male counterparts yeah um the way the male counterparts generally play a a backseat role to them because they're kind of necessary for stud services no pun intended Mm. (laughs) and not a lot more um so talking about underworld gods (laughs) uh as we've said they're referred to very respectfully um most people were wary of drawing the attention of an underworld god because, you know, it's death, it's scary, it's spooky. Um, they're the ultimate power that all the gods will have to bow to one day. Yeah. So you did things like you gave them nice names or nicer names. You didn't use their actual name just in case anybody was sort of listening. So, for example, with Persephone, she was called Despoina, she was called Cora, she was called Nestis, which means the fasting one presumably referring to her being in the underworld and not eating anything. Mm -hmm. And Hades was referred to by many names, but also the one who receives many guests, which is a very nice way to refer to the god of death. (laughs) Yes, this is true. But if you look at how um, putting Persephone together, so you've got Cora, which may have been a title so that you didn't have to call her by her name, Despoina, another title from a different source so mm-hmm. that you didn't have to call her by a real name, etc. And uh, the myth of Persephone, if you put them all together, 
Her oldest form is probably Dread Persephone, or Persephone, the bringer of death. So she may have been a, a titanic, chthonic goddess of the underworld in her own right. Yeah. And Hades probably had very little to do with it. Um, the case for this is that her reference to references to Persephone as, as any of these incarnations predates any reference to Hades by over a thousand years. Mm. Whereas Hades is first mentioned in the Iliad, which is comparatively recent as texts go. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's actually kind of funny because, as you say, Zeus as well was this minor sky deity. And going back, I'm pretty sure that actually Dionysus um, was also was had a bigger role or potentially had a bigger role. Um, and it, it is quite interesting because you see you see these characters, Persephone and stuff like that, who are seen as smaller roles or have kind of been put to the side in exchange. And for me, it speaks a lot of actually this shift in dependence on, on the land and the sea and the way that the seasons worked. Um, and this is, this is pure conjecture. So this is the way that I, I see it. Um, for instance, it makes a lot of sense that one of the main gods at a time, you know, would have, would have been a sea god rather than a sky god. It also makes sense that a goddess who was so associated with spring is associated with death because of that, that understanding of the life and death cycle. Um, you can kind of see the logic behind it and, and sort of the progress of the journey. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, as we, we frequently say here on Dissecting Dragons, um, stories evolve. Mythology, myths, legends change and shapeshift. I mean, you only have to look at Arthurian myth and how many times that shapeshifted yeah. in order to suit the time it's being told in. And this is very clearly a goddess goes into the underworld type story, which again has shapeshifted to become more acceptable to the time it was being told in. Yeah. And yet it still contains seeds of the original. Well, one final thing on Hades. Hades appears to be uh, a specialised part of Poseidon that was broken off and made god of the underworld. Yeah. So, you know, the whole sort of Zeus, Poseidon, Hades all being equal brothers kind of thing and Zeus tricking them out of anything except... <laughs> Basically, Hades getting the raw end of the deal by being made god of the underworld. But yeah. um, that's the thing. Hades probably didn't exist. Hades was originally Poseidon. Yeah. And was broken off in the same way that Hermes was originally a specialised name for Pan. Yeah. And again, the character got broken off and became a god in its own right. So that that's one final thing there. Now, there are opposing poles of, of misinformation about the Persephone-Hades myth. And the two main ones are the one we've kind of already discussed, which is that Persephone's abduction was a horrifically violent rape, um, which could be a misunderstanding or misinterpretation of the word kidnap and what it meant back in ancient Greece and what it means now. Because mm -hmm. obviously now it means very, very bad things. Yes. <laughs> or even a case of, you know, we can't have... You know, we, we start with this myth where she's acting under her own agency even though we have no textual evidence of this. And I can't stress that enough. I cannot draw you a list from Mycenaean Linear B back mm -hmm. through time and say, here, here is something in li literally in literature which says this myth became this. I, I can't do that. This no. is a dotted line. But to me, this makes sense. Yeah. 
And it, it might have been a case of, well, this myth continued because it was a really powerful one. There was lots of belief behind it. There were lots of people who were following the cult of Demeter and Persephone. And what do we do when we want to get people on board with our sky gods? Well, we take their gods and make them slightly inferior gods to the ones that we want to get people behind. Yeah. Which is how Zeus became the king of heaven kind of thing. And the father of the gods. And um, Persephone and Demeter became slightly lesser beings. Persephone almost having her personality drained out of her and being turned maiden. And yet you couldn't get rid of her completely. No. So such was her power kind of thing. And the whole idea of having her abducted was, well, we can't have women acting under their own agency and tell these stories to men. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, as you say, they couldn't they couldn't get rid of her entirely and they couldn't get rid of the fact that she was still queen of the underworld. They just had to make it that she was queen of the underworld by right of marriage. Yes, it had to be done in a palatable way. And in a way, you know, this is not even anything to get angry about there. That's the case of, well, we survive how we can. And this story and this myth has survived the way it can. Mm. And it's really interesting to trace it back. Um, on the other end of the misinformation, and this is where I, I didn't fully come a cropper, but I misquoted something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is back, <laughs> this takes us a long way back to 1977. Uh. When... <laughs> When the author Charlene Spretnak wrote Lost Goddesses of Early Greece, a collection of pre-Hellenic myths. Uh Now, she was justifiably horrified by the way women were portrayed in ancient Greek myth. And she tried reimagining them in a way that would be palatable to her young daughter. Um, There's nothing wrong with this at all. But it is fan fiction, essentially. And you know what? So what? That's not a problem. Why couldn't there be a more modern interpretation of it, which had a slightly more feminist slant? Yeah. The problem is, people read it, forgot where they'd read it, and then started quoting it as if it was the original, when there is no textual evidence for this being the original. Ah, right, I get it. So everything we've just talked about, that is, yes, it's speculation, but there is some historical evidence and literary historical evidence, not to mention linguistic historical evidence, Mm -hmm. For there being a through line between Despoina, Cora, Nestis, Persephone, the dread goddess of the underworld in her own right, and the Persephone Hades myth. Yeah. But this Persephone Hades myth, where she went in by herself as reimagined by uh, Spretnik, is, you know, it, it, it was a reimagining of that myth. Yeah. And the problem is, people quote the reimagining by Spretnik as the actual original version and it kind of wasn't right and it's not okay to do that guys by the way yeah Um, so that was my problem i didn't i was not clear that that was not what i was intending to do Mm. so i'm clarifying myself now because i don't like to be wrong no Um, so yeah, those are the two opposing poles of misinformation. On the one end, yeah, probably wasn't an absolutely horrifically violent rape, certainly not when you consider what their relationship became later in the myth. No. On the other hand, no, she didn't just go down there and take over hell in that way. However, there were lots of goddesses that did do that, and we're going to talk about some of them because they are so fun. Yes! Um, <laughs> I can hear Jules frantically like turning this like, and more notes! <laughs> Eight hundred um, pages of notes. 
No, I'm going. I'm not going to go into the details on every single one of these goddesses because we just wouldn't have time. But I am going to tell you the story of Ishtar, who was the Babylonian and slash Mesopotamian goddess of love, fertility, war, and beauty, mm-hmm. and possibly sex, as well. She appears in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Yes, and uh, it's it's <laughs> this is a really really great story, and I want everybody to look out for the LGBTQ plus rep because this is here and this story is about sort of four thousand years old. <laughs> this this is great. Anyway, Ishtar, being the goddess that she was, um, is you know greatly upset when her husband Tamesh dies. Um, she tries to have a sort of an affair with Gilgamesh himself, but uh-huh. that doesn't go terribly well. So in the end, in despair, she goes down to the underworld to get Tamesh back, right. or to at least speak to him, depending on which version you go for. Uh, she goes through the seven gates of hell. Now, what's really interesting is this is picked up in modern pagan witchcraft tradition. So, I mean, in modern pagan witchcraft tradition, they say... Uh, there's the three stages of the goddess's descent into the underworld, and this mm-hmm. is a yearly reenactment thing, and it's also part of the initiation rite. Um, and that's as far as I think I'm allowed to talk about it. Okay, um, <laughs> but through but through the seven gate through this going through the seven gates at each gate, she was required to stop and divest herself of a garment. So it was kind of like you know strip poker in hell kind of thing. Right. <laughs> Anyway, she goes all the way down to hell. She arrives naked before Arishkagel, who is the queen of the dead. Uh Arishkagel is kind of like, yeah, but you can't speak to Tamish because he's dead and you you cannot speak to the dead. You you cannot take him back. I'm sorry. He's now one of my subjects. You you can't go anywhere. Ishtar realises that she's come on a bit of a fool's errand and decides that she's going to go back again. And Arishkagel says... Uh, no, 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 that doesn't happen. This is a one-way journey. You come into hell, you don't get to leave. Um, because Ishtar is a goddess in her own right, Erishkagel says, well, it's my job to keep you here, and unleashes 60 plagues on her. Right, okay. <laughs> Which seems a little bit, sort of, bit much. overkill. Yeah. But you know, death, goddesses, death and underworld goddesses, they they got to do what they got to do. They... <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely one way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> they got a job, man. <laughs> anyway, without the goddess of fertility and love on the surface, things start to go horribly wrong. Um, the other gods search for Ishtar, and eventually the water god Enki discovers that Ishtar is suffering 60 plagues in the underworld, in Kerr. Kerr, Kerr is the name of the underworld. Okay. Um, Enki's kind of like, well, I can't go down and get the, get her myself, therefore I will nominate a hero. And so he basically taps <laughs> a star tsunami who had who was neither male nor female. Uh-huh. They were not binary. A star tsunami. And this is this is textual. Uh-huh. They were non-binary. They did not have a specific gender. Sending them on a mission down into the underworld to seduce the goddess Erishkagel. Okay. Now apparently. <laughs> Ashtar Shunami really had game because Rishkagel was immediately smitten. <laughs> and as they were dallying together, Ashtar Shunami says, you know, one thing I would dearly love to see is the water of life. And Rishkagel cannot wait to show it to them. Right. At which point, Ashtar Shunami steals some water of life and sprinkles it on Ishtar, who is reanimated, loses the 60 plagues, and then starts pelting for the exit. <laughs> A star tsunami runs after her, and Arishkagel 
scorned and really, really pissed off at this point because two people are leaving hell, leaving Kerr when they shouldn't be. Curses Ashtar Shunami that they and everyone like them will be outcasts and live in the shadows of society forever. Oh my god. I'd like to point out this story is over 4,000 years old. As compensation, Ishtar's kind of like, wow, that's that's a super bummer kind of thing. <laughs> Jesus. I'm totally paraphrasing here. <laughs> Obviously, I don't speak Sumerian. Um, <laughs> he was going to say, whoo, bummer, wow. <laughs> so it was like, oh, that's a hefty curse. Can't take it off you because Arishka girl's actually stronger than me. But Ishtar blesses them with the gifts of prophecy and healing. So that is the story of the goddess Ishtar's descent into the underworld. That's amazing. And I would like to point out, obviously, if uh, this doesn't need pointing out, but the fact that, you know what, they were very definite that this was a non-binary hero. <laughs> a non-binary hero who was magical, could seduce the goddess of death in the underworld, <laughs> and still emerge from uh, the underworld on the other side. That's amazing. That is an incredible story. <laughs> I thought you'd like that one. I definitely do. <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've written down a couple of other underworld goddesses. Inanna is the ancient Mesopotamian goddess of war, love, beauty, sex, justice, and political power. Um, she was known as the Queen of Heaven. I, I think this might be another one of those let's flatter her because you know she is batshit kind of things. Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting about Inanna to me is that she was a conqueror goddess, as in she her myths. Um, generally feature her waltzing into other gods' domains and then taking them over and throwing <laughs> the original owner of that domain over. And one such, one such, one such campaign um, involved her going down into the underworld and trying to oust Arishkagel, also the name in Mesopot ancient Mesopotamian. Apparently, that name got passed around mm -hmm. um, from her throne. Arishkagel was not having it. <laughs> was not having it at all. And again, Inanna suffered under Erishkigal's curse until again Enki, the water god, <laughs> sent again a non-binary hero down to rescue her. The goddess of death just as a serious thing. For, for it's like, wait, are you a boy? Are you a girl? You're not. Oh my god, that is so my time. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. I feel um, you. I, I feel you, man. <laughs> Um, I, I will point out though that Inanna was a, a dread goddess in the sense of yes she conquered all these other domains she became kind of the goddess of all apart from the underworld because Arishkagel wasn't giving up that throne yeah. <laughs> not to anybody <laughs> um, but as an example of things that Inanna did she destroyed Mount Ebi because the mountain basically she asked everyone who was more beautiful her or Mount Ebi and uh, you know a lot of people came back with actually Mount Ebi's more beautiful than you Nanana was not happy with this and she ordered the mountain to get out of her sight and the mountain being a mountain sort of went nah, I'm going to stay here and so she blasted it into smithereens uh, I'm assuming this is a, an explanation myth for a volcanic eruption but you know, <laughs> Nanana was badass so extra Necessary. Who's more beautiful, me or the mountain? Well, we think the mountain's quite mountain obliterates. <laughs> Try again. <laughs> and if you want an Egyptian version of the Ishtar Inanna type goddess, although they're not exactly the same, there's Astarte 
or Ashtaroth, who may have been, she, in some Egyptian mythology, was supposedly married to Seth. Okay. Who was the god of evil and corruption, as well as many other things. So, you know, even goddesses like a bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> and again, not very much is known about Astarte herself. But again, she was another terrible goddess in many, terrible in the sense of you did not want to piss her off. Yeah. And was a goddess of the underworld. Um, similar, presumably, to... Actually, she was slightly more dynamic than Nethys, I think. So this is very, very early ancient Egypt rather than slightly more recent ancient Egypt. I love how I'm moving along the timeline by a few thousand years and kind of like, yeah, this is more recent. This is way older. <laughs> but no, you've got to say it. You've got to say it. <laughs> and the final one is a goddess we've actually spoken about at a reasonable amount of length. And that is the, the pre-Judaic goddess um, Ashira or Aneth, who originally was the sister of Yahweh and the far more violent of the two siblings. The one who, on her wedding night, emasculated her fiancé, then killed him and then cooled her feet in his blood. Um, she was a goddess of war and destruction and, quite frankly, bathed in the blood of her enemies kind of thing. Big mood. Big mood. <laughs> <laughs> It, I mean, to be honest, it, it is amazing, though, because you do, you get these, the underworld, and across cultures, um, the underworld is run by a woman. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, obviously, you have the Akkadian, you know, Poseidon was the god of the underworld kind of thing, but he doesn't actually seem to have done very much. No. When he was, whereas you've got Despoina, or Persephone, as she was then, yeah. that incarnation of her. And it was kind of like, oh, God, no, don't speak her name kind of thing. Oh, we'll call Poseidon Poseidon, but we, we, we can't speak of Despoina kind of thing. She is the final mistress. Yeah, of course. And then, you know, in the Norse myth, you have Hel or Hela. Yeah. Um, and in the Japanese, oh, what was her name? What was her name? She became the, the goddess of death because she died. It, she was one of the first two goddesses that arrived and it was her and her husband and then her, she died and her husband was like, I'm going to go get her back. And then by the time he went down into the underworld, she, you know, like <laughs> decayed a lot and he was like, oh no. <laughs> he tried to run away and she followed him. She tried to chase him down and so he blocked her way with a large rock. It's, it's what, I, what I think I can remember. <laughs> Just literally went, oh no, that's a little bit, you're a little bit too grave wormy for me. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes. Um, is that Izanami no Mikoto? That's it, Izanami. She who invites. Yes. Um, well, which is a very nice way of saying a bit like, he who receives many guests. Yeah. So you're all going there eventually. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So yes, yeah, so she was the she was the wife of uh, Izanagi no Mikoto, um, and yeah, so she yeah she started off as a creation goddess. She was the kind of the mother of all of the gods, of you know um, the, the main the main gods in Japan. Um, and, but then yeah, as it says, she died. <laughs> Her husband was just there, like, oh no. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's across borders. You you get this idea of of women are the, <laughs> the rulers of the dead, which I kind of like. And it it does kind of make sense. I mean, I think what is interesting here is that there are scholars of of ancient mythology who very much poo poo the idea that pre the 
pre basically pre the green revolution pre a natural disaster which meant that men took a more active role in sort of the politics and running of a tribe mm. etc um that things were probably quite matriarchal or at least equal mm. and if you look at things like um, some of the Earth Mother figures that have been dug up that, you know, date back thousands and thousands of years to sort of, you know, caveman type time. Yeah. I know that's not very precise, but I've been as precise as I need to be on this episode. But but yeah, which suggests, you know, fertility, mother worship, because it was understood that we exist, we continue through women being able to give birth kind of thing. There was a lot of importance placed on that, um, which is understandable when you, you're living between, you know, the next, your net one meal and the next, not knowing if strange forces are going to strike you down, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's really interesting, and some of the the seeds of things that exist in this myth suggest you know women have the power of life and death because they give birth. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, that as things became more patriarchal, that sort of power was not appreciated, even if it was acknowledged, and it had to be hemmed in, which is why I think you had a shift in things like the Persephone and Hadesmith too. Mm. It was an abduction. She had no real choice in the matter. Yeah. Um, but it's weird how she ended up in a really sort of relatively happy and functional couple with him, isn't it? Yeah. She, equal part. Again, as we said, that probably one of the most functional couples in Greek mythology. <laughs> yeah. So I think that brings us to a good place to sort of sum up this this particular myth. And that is basically Persephone and Hadesmith. Uh, Persephone and Hepony. Persephone and Hades. Oh my god, my brain is moving too fast right now. You found you found their their couple name. That's their pairing name. That's that's how much I ship them. Okay. Even even four thousand years later, actually, it's not that much, is it? It's about what two and a half, three thousand. Anyway, Persephone and Hades, Greek power couple? Question mark. As we've said. The most functional couple in the entire pantheon. Yeah. Um, I don't know what people know about Zeus and Hera, but that was not a consensual coupling. And then there are a lot of the others, the ones that seem to be sort of romance-based, as as the ancient Greeks understood romance, were very much about seduction and sex rather than genuine connection and partnership. Yeah. Um most of the marriages which are depicted in the pantheon are not happy marriages. You've got Persephone, not Persephone, what am I saying? Um, Aphrodite um, and Hephaestus. And Aphrodite is constantly having affairs. And Hephaestus can't do much about it because he's lame. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then he also tries to, to rape Athena, who one day she goes down to see him. and He's like <gasps> overcome with desire for his... Are they cousins? Are they are they siblings? Who knows at this point? I think they're siblings. And they are siblings. Yeah, they are siblings. They're also probably cousins as well, but also siblings. Um, this is the problem when, <laughs> when siblings marry and then marry their own children. And yeah, it gets weird. Um, so yeah, you, <laughs> you have these very kind of unhappy relationships within the pantheon. You have these, and in fact, they're constantly cheating on each other. They're constantly, you know, up up to no good and Hades and Persephone just seem to be quite stable actually after that initial again and we come into question what that kidnap actually means but after that initial kind of you know bump in the road and hey you know we're, we're not saying that, that these guys were good people none of them were good people um in any in any version of the story uh, but they actually seem to be quite a stable couple 
definitely. Um, there, we haven't really got time to explore it, but there are other Persephone and Hades stories whereby someone comes along and either tries to abduct Persephone back out of out of Hades' realm um, in order to marry her, and Hades does something terrible to them, and vice versa. When someone tries to seduce Hades, and Persephone's kind of like, "No, he's my husband. You're not having him." Yeah, and they they are very ride or die together. They kind of rule together. Yeah, and and you, they're a strong partnership. You also see that Persephone does actually have power she has actual power within the underworld as demonstrated by and i can't believe i've just forgotten his name the the rolling the boulder up the hill sisyphus sisyphus thank you sisyphus actually in tri- <laughs> tricks persephone at one point where and i'm sorry i won't go into this too much but basically um he, sisyphus before he died told his wife to just throw his body into the street and not give him a proper burial. So then he arrives in the underworld and he entreats Persephone and just says, please, my my wife has not given me a proper funeral. Can I? Can you please grant me to go back up there and tell her to give me a, a proper funeral so that I can rest in peace? And Persephone goes, okay, yes, and she allows him. And I really want you to recognise the power she must have in order to allow him to return to the land of the living. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously Orpheus and Eurydice and the fact that when people interceded with Hades to have a loved one returned, quite often Persephone, if she believed that their love was was genuine, would intercede with Hades with this and say, I think they ought to be given a chance. But obviously it has to be a trial because this is not something that can be given lightly. Yeah. So, yeah, it it is really, really interesting. Um, as far as these things go, a, a final point on the whole kidnapping thing is the fact that, believe it or not, a lot of our sources are pottery. They are pottery depictions of figures. They're not written down, so we've got lovely urns and vases and things, and the the artists tend to use, his, use stock positions. Mm. So the position to show that a man and a woman had got married was exactly the same as a man is kidnapping a woman. <laughs> That's going to lead to some confusion. <laughs> exactly. This, this does not help with our source interpretation. Does it? And it's not like we can sort of zip back about 3,000 years and say to the artist, so really saying it was a kidnap? <laughs> What's happening here? Well, obviously they're, <laughs> they're having a little bit of fun, you know, for their marriage. You know, she's, she's being a bit coquettish. Okay. <laughs> It's like, really? Because it kind of looks bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. This is, yeah, context Context is incredibly important. And the problem is that we can only glean context from certain hints and other bits of evidence. Um, so, you know, this is all this is all speculation on our part, but it is supported speculation. Yeah, and it's... I think the other thing to consider is that stories are quite often passed along verbally. So, and... The, the context of a story will shift depending on who's telling it. So a mother telling it to her daughter mm-hmm. might make far more of Persephone's own personal choices. Yeah. Whereas, well, we know, we because we've got Homer, who's written the hymn to Demeter, and it's kind of like, yeah, clearly Persephone had no say in the entire thing at all, and it was a really horrific yeah. ordeal kind of thing. And then other people have written since then and built on top of that particular thing, because what other possible interpretation could there be? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, get, it gets frustrating. But let's bear in mind that women weren't generally taught to write. It was very unusual. And having the materials and the leisure time in order to be able to write, again, was very, very unusual. Mm. So, yeah, I think this is a story that 
recaptures people again and again because it contains one of the most popular motifs in storytelling. <laughs> it's this this really popular trope of the, you know, it's one of my favourite tropes, the one sort of the, the arranged marriage that turns into the real deal kind of thing because both parties try and make it work. Yeah. <laughs> this is and this is why Jules really likes it. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, it, it's I th- I, it turns up in it, this sort of idea turns up in probably quite a lot of young adult fiction now. It turns up in fairy tales. Think of the Earl Connig. Yeah, the Earl Connig kidnaps his brides, but his brides almost universally come to love him. Um, it, it's things like labyrinth. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, well yeah okay without going into labyrinth because we've talked about labyrinth a lot but you know it's her own agency that takes her out of the labyrinth in the end yeah and yet you can tell that there's some attraction there still yeah um it's the regency romance it's the my god it's bridgerton it's the whole sort of well we'll get married because that'll stop everyone talking and you know we're even going to have sex together but it doesn't mean anything until one of us admits that we've actually fallen in love with the other person yeah absolutely yeah so Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a story that has been probably grossly misinterpreted at worst. Um, or, you know, we. I, I really do wish we had more sources and things and that we could turn those dotted lines back through history into, you know, straight paths that you could genuinely connect um, different eras and different myths together. Yeah. Because I, I get that this is kind of like, this, this is a mythological murder board where I've got pictures here and there and red string going between them kind of thing. Yeah, and I think ultimately that is... It's really important to remember that that none of this is ever going to be linear. Um, you know, the, the shaping of these stories is not one linear line. Um, there is going to be different things happening at different times, from different angles, different, you know, modes of worship in different areas. And... All that we have left are these scraps of information, um, you know, bits of <laughs> bits of pottery, um, <laughs> and and you know, sort of tales which were written later on, and that's all we do have. So we can only speculate, yeah, and we can. Absolutely. But as you know, as Jules has pointed out, applying context, looking further and deeper into it, it's it's incredibly reasonable to to kind of come to this conclusion that Persephone was actually in her own right and not through marriage, you know, the queen of the underworld, that she ran the underworld. Um, and we know for a fact that Hades was a late addition. I say late addition, but he was. He was a late addition <laughs> to the Pantheon. Um, it's only 3,000 years ago. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he, he was tardy as all hell. Um, so... You know, there, there's so much missing, there's so much we don't know, but the fact of the matter is that, you know, even within that one culture, there could have been one person who knew one story, and then across the other side of the country, another person who knew a different story. So there's never going to be one one version, there's never going to be one line um, of events unfurling, um, which is kind of what makes it so much fun. Definitely. So um, I just want to say a quick shout out to Taylor Denwood, who started me down this rabbit hole. So thank you, Taylor. <laughs> I'd also like to do a special shout out to Overly Sarcastic Productions on YouTube, who uh, do a really great 
mythology series that I recommend people check out. Yeah, definitely. Um, and they actually helped me crystallise the bits of research I did on this and put them together in a coherent manner. So. Yeah. I, I think I actually recommended um, Overly Sarcastic Productions. Yeah. I think you might have done it. And then I, I'd forgotten it and re-stumbled over it again once I was doing my sort of like, ooh, what, dispo- what does disappointing mean kind of thing? Yeah, no, it's it's been very good because I've obviously been doing my, my research recently um, into Loki, which I've already researched quite a lot about Loki. Um, but yeah, their, their video kind of offered a new perspective that made me rethink some some areas. Um, yeah. So it is. It's it's very well worth watching, um, and it works particularly well if you've kind of you're already very invested in a subject because it can just sort of provoke some new some new thoughts, some interesting ideas. Um, Definitely. What? So final note: <laughs> uh, mythology is not as straight, cis, um, uh, male oriented, or anything else that you'd like to believe it is. It really. And and the mythology which has been solidified today, remember, is recent. It's recent. Um, comparatively, the stories we know of the Greek pantheon, um, you know, these are the ones which were from the written texts. They are not the only ones. Um, they never were. They're, they're just the ones which have survived. So do bear that in mind. And be creative if you're drawing on them for your own writing. You know? Yeah. You don't you don't have to stick only to one interpretation. With that in mind, <laughs> it is actually time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And I have got one for you guys. Um, to be honest, by the time this episode airs, I'm fairly certain that most of our listeners will have already watched it. But I'm going to go ahead and have to recommend Netflix's Shadow and Bone. Which will be surprised to nobody. Surprised to absolutely nobody. Um, <laughs> now, I will say that I, I liked the Grisha series, but I did. I much preferred Six of Crows, and I think that is definitely also reflected in the way that I responded to Shadow and Bone. I thought it was all good. I liked it. Um, I still, I still preferred seeing whenever the the Six of Crows characters came on screen. I was like, Yay, Inej, Cass, Jasper, Jasper. 110% perfect casting there. In fact, the casting for all of it was brilliant, but like Jasper is just I've fallen back in love again. Um, highly recommended. Very, very good series. Beautifully shot. Fantastic acting. Um, just, just really, really wonderful. Now, one thing I will say is that this is a series that I think people who've read the books, um, even if you haven't read all of the books, will appreciate more than uh, perhaps people who haven't. Not to say that people who haven't won't like it, I think you will, but there's lots of tiny little things there which, if you've read the books, you're going to really, really appreciate extra. So highly recommended um, if you have ever had a gander at the Grishaverse or Six of Crows. The series is very good. I cannot wait for series two. They haven't announced it yet um, in my time, um, but I'm hoping by the time this episode airs, <laughs> we will have confirmation. I think it's quite likely, isn't it? Yeah. I am looking forward to watching it, but I don't know how soon I'm going to get to it. Well, 
for now guys we'll say thank you so much for listening remember you can get in touch with us via our facebook our twitter and our tumblr both individually or through the dissecting dragons page we love hearing from you let us know what you think about today's episodes has it changed your way of thinking do you have something to add do you disagree with us please do get in contact for now we'll say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye! You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.